if we left this to uh, the normal course of staffing processes and so on, we'd be arguing about documents for years. That's not going to happen. We're going to move quickly. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with that. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm J.J. Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. The United States Air Force just announced its major reorientation toward great power competition, but that's not all they're doing. Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall joins us to discuss the rationale for the changes, as well as what has to happen to make it succeed and much, much more. And the Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, retired Lieutenant General Dave Deptula, joins us with his thoughts on the reoptimization plan. Plus this week's headlines in air power. And it's all powered by GE. GE Aerospace is advancing revolutionary engine technologies for this decade and beyond, and the XA100 adaptive engine is tested and ready to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA100. And the Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of publications is also brought to you by HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Bell, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. JJ, what's in the news this week on a shorter version of All Wings Considered? We will keep this tight, Vago, because most of this week's news came from the AFA Warfare Symposium. You heard part of that in our interview with the Chief of Staff, General Alvin, on Tuesday, and we'll get more with Secretary Kendall in just a moment. The Boeing Leonardo MH-139 Gray Wolf helicopter is getting ready to enter service. Although some operational suitability questions remain, the first production 139s are almost finished, and we'll be going to Maxwell Air Force Base, which will be the training location, and Malmstrom Air Force Base next month. Pratt & Whitney's XA-103, that's their candidate engine for the Next Generation Air Dominance Program, has passed its critical design review with the Air Force and is set to move ahead. And there's a new chief in the Pacific. General Kevin Schneider has succeeded Cruiser Wilsbach at the helm of Pacific Air Forces. Wilsbach, of course, is headed for Air Combat Command. Vago? Thanks very much, JJ. And here's our conversation with Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall. Sir, congratulations on the big reorganization to better prepare the Air Force for great power competition. You guys call it a reoptimization. You have made clear that China constitutes a danger that is so pressing that the reorganization of the Air Force, uh, its capitalization and everything has got to be hyper-focused, including development of its airmen. You've said we're out of time and we don't have any time to lose, which suggests that there's a time pressure component to this. Even though people don't like to talk about windows, you yourself mentioned Xi Jinping's order to the PLA, be ready by 2027 to unify with Taiwan, and indeed noted what uh, the Chinese premier has told the American president, which is we're going to unify with Taiwan one way or another, sooner or later. You have been taking a classified intelligence book around up to the Hill to members of Congress, retired general officers were briefed here in a classified setting. How has this threat changed in the last three years? And what about it has indicated to you that there is actually a ticking clock and that it is imperative to move faster? Vago, I've been watching uh, China's modernization program since 2010. I had four years out of government, but I, in the interim, and I paid attention while I was out. Just in the two and a half years since I've been back in, there have been a number of developments, and I'm getting access to more detailed intelligence than I was for a while there. We're in a long-term strategic competition with China. I mean, that's kind of a basic reality that we have to deal with here. And China has an authoritarian form of government and a philosophy of 
uh, international relations, it's just directly antithetical to the United States' views. They've been investing very heavily in modernizing their military, and it's quite clear from the intelligence I've seen that they're building a military that is not just a general purpose military, but is designed with the idea of being able to defeat the United States, particularly if we project power in the Western Pacific. So that's a serious threat, and it's getting more serious over time. So we need to respond to it. There is always some possibility of a conflict through a miscalculation or whatever. But I think over time, that, that possibility grows. It grows as China becomes more confident. It grows as their perceptions of their relative power in the world changes. And it's one, it's one aspect of the broader competition, which I think is frankly dominated by economic competition with China more than anything else. The military component is, is very risky. One of the things they've done more recently is demonstrate that they're moving to a much larger nuclear force. That's disconcerting. Uh, we've never lived in a tripolar nuclear world, so now we have to deal with that. And they're in the process of fielding that now. They're being very thoughtful about their investments. They're looking at how we project power, and they're trying to capitalize on what they see as our weaknesses. And the 2027 date is a milestone they have picked to be prepared to take Taiwan by force and defeat the U.S. if we intervene. I don't know if the military in Xi Jinping's view will actually be ready by then, but I'm fairly confident they will tell him that they are. And the risk will go up substantially once that occurs. We don't have any time to waste. We need to do everything we can to demonstrate our capabilities and our resolve and to present China with an impossible military situation that they will not want to challenge us. So that's, that's the race we're in, and we need to move as quickly as we can. But uh, one follow-up to that is it doesn't matter what the U.S. Air Force's plans are. Your plans six months after coming into office were to do major shifts to better prepare for that competition, and yet you still haven't gotten your money. What signal does that send to adversaries around the world? The president of the United States vowed support for Ukraine, and there's a Senate measure that was passed that is unlikely to pass at this point through the House, or its future is uncertain. Whether or not you're doing the right things, what, what are the broader messages that are being sent by way of deterrence? Well, that's a good question. First of all, though, we are doing things, and we have been for some time. I talked earlier today about the CCA program, which you were able to start without waiting for funding from the Congress. It's going to take another increment of funding to allow it to go forward, but we were able to get some things started. So where we could within the resources and the authorities we had, we've already made some moves to move forward. We've integrated management, for example, of all our C3 battle management work under a single leader. So with the existing resources, we're able to move much more coherently in the right direction there. That's been a very successful effort. Um, and I can point to a few others as well. On the broader question you ask about basically American unity, there was a time when politics stopped at the water's edge, and nothing like that is true now. I'm a cold warrior. I spent 20 years in a country that was united and in its understanding of the threat the Soviet Union and communist ideology posed to us. I think the vast majority of American people perceive that China is a serious uh, competitor and a threat. That's one of the things that we tend to be more united on. It's a very different situation when it comes to Russia, unfortunately. But Russia's naked aggression, Putin's authoritarianism are clearly on display. And we should be united in our opposition to that as well. Obviously, a lot of thought went into the reoptimization plan, but now comes execution. There's 24 bullet points on there. For every one of them, there's an awful lot of steps below. You're wanting to get this done, some of those in months, but pretty much all within a year. What are the biggest hurdles you see, 
on making that timeline? And what does success look like at the end? How do you know you've done it right? Those are two good questions on there. Overcoming the hurdles. One of the hurdles we have to overcome is our own tendency to be bureaucratic in the way we implement things. Uh, and the solution to that, in my mind, is leadership. And what the Chiefs and the Under and I have done is we've already nominated individuals who will be our chosen appointed leaders for each of these things. And they will be held accountable for formulating plans and moving out and executing them. And we will give them all the assistance they need to cut through whatever bureaucracy is in the way. And we'll be meeting frequently with those leaders to ensure they have sound plans and help them execute. So I'm not terribly concerned about that. I think we know how to do that, and we will. If we left this to uh, the normal course of staffing processes and so on, we'd be arguing about documents for years. That's not going to happen. We're going to move quickly. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with that. Uh, what was the second part of your question? What does success look like? How do you know that you're on course to make it? Yeah, we'll, we'll define that in the context of each of these, but I think in many cases the action speaks for itself in terms of what we're trying to accomplish. For the overarching concept of having a more robust system to plan and move into the future, um, I think that will take some time to play out. But what I'm looking for is a healthy tension between different stakeholders that leads to better decisions and better investment uh, choices for us, and then rapidly to to fielding capabilities. I'd hate to say this, but we're going to know it when we see it, in a sense. A well-run organization looks like a well-run organization. A badly-run organization has some really obvious deficiencies. And we have a good model in our minds of what a well-run organization looks like, and that's that's what we're shooting for. But there's no substitute for leadership. There's no way you can do this without strong leaders who understand the concept you're trying to implement and are committed to it and are moving their organizations forward. And that's the mechanism we're going to use to have success. You know, you talk about urgency, but actually, if you look at it, the wheel is moving quickly already. Give the audience a sense, because some of these programs you want fielded much more quickly, I think, than even is the perception, whether it's NGAD in 2028 or collaborative combat aircraft. Is the wheel actually moving a lot more quickly than people think it's moving at this point? In some cases, yes, both in the case of the the things we're doing in space to field resilient architectures are moving fairly quickly, and the CCA program is moving fairly quickly. Uh, in both cases, we're going to be having you know hundreds of assets in the inventory by the end of the fit. You've been asked whether you need more money to execute this or whether it's budget neutral. When we were doing major exercises before, or during the Cold War, you had a much larger Air Force at a much lower operational tempo. How do you fit all of that together? Can you carry out those exercises and keep doing everything we're doing around the world, or do they become a driver in shaping the force of the future? Another great question. Um, I think we're going to learn a lot as we go through the implementation of the decisions we've made. And I think we'll find out where we have some shortfalls that are not visible today. On the exercise front, Uh, We do a lot of small exercises, so hopefully by bringing them together to larger scale exercises, we'll do a couple of things. We'll better prepare ourselves, but we'll also demonstrate, as part of our deterrence equation, the capacity to do that, which is something I want to make sure that our adversaries understand, particularly China. I think as we formulate units which are fully capable and deployable, we're going to discover some gaps. And I think as as we go through this process, we're going to discover... 
that we may not have all the capacity we need in certain areas. And that'll be, you know, providing us with a better picture of our, our own real capabilities that we may not have right now. So I think we're going to learn a lot, and I think there will be resources that come into play as a result of that. But I think it's all going to be beneficial because we have a much clearer picture of what we are and what we're really prepared to do. And we'll be able to articulate that to other leadership uh, within the department and, uh, and the Congress and other places as well. It'll position us to make arguments about, you know, the need for resources and about the implications of some of our current deployments as well. For uh, those who heard our Tuesday program with the chief, they'll know that JJ asked a similar question about manpower. Does this also help drive investment more broadly that you need? Because on almost every front, we are beginning to recognize that the force that we created that is hyper-optimized, hyper-efficient, doesn't have enough people, doesn't have enough munitions, and doesn't have enough systems at the end of the day for the magnitude of the battle that might be ahead, which our adversary understands, which is why they're working on the size of the force uh, and making sure that they have overmatched and layered capabilities. Does this help the Air Force and maybe the department make a better request or a clearer request for more resources over time? Yeah, I think we'll be better informed as we take a hard look at ourselves. Uh, it's one thing to have a force of a certain size, but you also have to get that force to the fight and you have to sustain it when it gets there. So those things require resources too. So uh, in addition to just counting how many airplanes we have and how many people we have to fly them, we've got to look at a lot of other aspects of the organization to look at our total capability. And we're basically sized for operational success. That's the goal. That's what we want to be able to do. We want to confront the Chinese with the fact that if they do attempt to do something aggressive and military in the Western Pacific, that they will not succeed. You know, we're not trying to build a military that can fight a five-year-long World War III. That's not reasonable. But we should be able to build a military that can give China that problem if it thinks about uh, an act of aggression. This reoptimization is a big change for the Air Force, but it's also a big change for the industry that supports it. Mm -hmm. They're used to working at the major command level and even at the unit level on requirements and on selling, quite frankly. You're consolidating a lot of those functions. How is industry going to work with the Air Force? How would you like the industry to work with the Air Force? And what do you want them to know about this reoptimization? I hopefully very closely. One of the things that, and more efficiently even, I've seen industry try a lot of different things to sell over time, right? I've seen industry try to go to individual four-star generals and get them to make decisions on buying things. I've seen them try to do things at the grassroots level with units at various levels. I've seen them try to work through the Sibbers, you know, small business program. There are a lot of different avenues. I wouldn't close out any of those necessarily to industry. But as we create the organizations that are designed around the mission of making sure we have a pipeline of competitive capabilities coming into the Air Force and Space Force, those are good places to have relationships and to bring your ideas, right? And there are multiples of these, right? But the Integrated Capabilities Command in the Air Force that we're going to form, the three-star level command, will be an important place to have conversations. So will the various system centers that we're creating over on the uh, acquisition side of the Air Force. And also the integrated development office that will form an Air Force Materiel Command. Uh, and then finally, there's in the, in the Secretariat itself, the Integrated Capabilities Office will create, which is essentially a Chief System Engineer's Chief Architect's Office. So those are all possibilities. They're not the only ones. We're gonna try 
to communicate all this as clearly as we can to industry. I want industry to have a good dialogue with us, and I want to open opportunities for, for collaboration, working together. There will be ideas that come out of the operational community. There will be ideas that come out of the technical communities. And we're going to try to ensure that those two communities work together to come up with the best possible solutions for the Air Force and the Space Force. So that's the intent behind all of this. One of the major parts of that industry is a company called Boeing that right now is experiencing some heavy weather on both its commercial and defense sides. How important is it for you and for the Air Force that Boeing remain a significant player on the defense side? And is there anything aside from direct support that the service can do to help them? Yeah, the country benefits from having strong industrial base in general. Um, Boeing is a little bit unique in that it has a very strong commercial market for aerospace products as well as a very strong defense market. That's an important asset for the country. And historically, it's allowed Boeing to basically shift its emphasis uh, depending upon why the markets were shifting. So I think what Boeing has to do, however, is deliver. They have to deliver products that they promise us on cost and on schedule. And we've been having a number of problems with them doing that and some of the things they've taken on for us. So I would say the thing I would say first to Boeing is you need to improve your performance. There's a lot of debate about whether on CCA or whether on next generation air dominance and who wins it. Does past performance become an important factor in any of those decisions? Past performance is a factor, and I'd refer you to Andrew Hunter to see if he thinks it's to be, make any adjustments. It's routinely considered. Routinely, it's been a relatively lesser factor than cost, for example, in performance itself. I'll, I'll let you take that question to Andrew. I don't know if he's contemplating any major change in policy there or if Bill plan is. I try to stay out of the acquisition business to some degree in my current role. I'm not always successful at that, but I try to let the acquisition people do acquisition. Uh, noted. Let me take you to a more strategic level. Former President Trump is no fan of NATO. He's always been a critic. And his statements just last weekend got a lot of people's attention. And unfortunately, this time around, there were not as many people pushing back on that notion from his own party, encouraging Russia, for example, to attack NATO members that may be delinquent, whatever that means. I mean, presumably it's below 2% GDP on, on defense. There are already our allies and partners that are very worried about the future uh, and whether or not the United States will be a reliable ally. The Ukraine vote is an important part of that. The Afghan withdrawal plays into that. And increasingly, whether or not the United States is going to be there for its allies and partners. And the U.S. Air Force is the number one partner for many of these nations because air systems are the most expensive and high-end uh, systems. What are the kind of conversations you're having with our allies and partners? How worried are they? What reassurances can you, as the Secretary of the Air Force and a key member of the national security team, make? And at what point do you think it starts reflecting in the systems they buy because they're worried about American reliability? Well, Vago, first of all, I'm in a job where I'm supposed to be apolitical, so I'm going to do my best to be apolitical about this one. The NATO alliance has been of enormous value to the United States of America. It served us through the entire Cold War and led to a incredible victory without a shot being fired when the Soviet Union fell apart and the Berlin Wall came down. That is a priceless contribution to stability and peace in the world. NATO continues to provide that. They were a very close partner as we responded to the terrorist attacks on the United States in 911. 
They continue to be a very close partner as we deal with aggression in Ukraine. NATO is an invaluable alliance to the United States. Overall this time, there's been some pressure on our NATO partners to increase their contributions to spending, and those will continue. And what we've seen in many cases as a result of the invasion of Ukraine is NATO states stepping up and, and increasing their commitments. We're going to continue to put that pressure on them. But the value of the alliance is astronomical. And to put it at risk, I think, is a grave disservice to this country and to the world. Do you think there is an acquisition impact at some point? Do you worry about that? In what way? That uh, some of these nations may not think we're as reliable of a partner and decide, oh. hey, we don't want F-35s or as many of them. I'm not concerned about that. First of all, we are a reliable partner, and I think we're going to stay a reliable partner. Second of all, we build the best equipment in the world, and they understand that, and we support it very well. You know, we, we have a cumbersome process for foreign military sales or even direct commercial sales, and it can take time to get through it, and there's some bureaucracy associated with it. But at the end of the day, you get very good products with a lot of very good support, and our, our partners understand that. They also understand the value of interoperability. I mean, one of the things for me, I've spent quite a few years with the F-35. I was president at the conception of the F-35 and uh, was responsible for it for quite a few years. It's astonishing to me that we went from the original uh, group of several states to the numbers of states that are, that are involved now. A remarkably successful program. Very expensive, had a lot of issues as it was going through development, still having issues in development, but providing enormous capability to a, a large number of friendly states. A remarkably successful program that right now may be uh, presaging a change in the way we do arms exports. A Dutch court has been asked to rule that Dutch companies cannot supply parts for F-35s because of the way Israel is using those in its current conflict with Hamas. In the U.S. Congress, we have members asking for legislation similarly to shut down U.S. arms supplies to countries if we don't like the way that they're using the equipment that we sell to them. Does that concern you Does, uh, about the nature of Americans' arms exports, that there are going to be increasing restrictions on them, possibly coming from people who are inside the tent? We place restrictions on our own arms sales based on human rights. We do that today. And I'm not going to make any comment on what one foreign country's court might decide to do to further that goal. We do not want our weapons used in a way which violates the laws of war. And we, we take steps in the United States to ensure that that doesn't happen. And we're going to continue to do so. I would point out to the audience that you're a human rights lawyer among many of your other attributes. Let me ask you one question. And we talk about China, 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 how important China is. Uh, the Estonians just released an intelligence assessment that says that Russia over the next decade will continue to constitute a threat to Europe. From your standpoint, what are some of the capabilities that we need aimed at the Russians, or does a focus on China actually take care of a lot of other lesser cases? Uh, of the two, China has much greater resources, and they're modernizing, I think, much more aggressively, particularly their conventional force than Russia is. And we just saw that the, uh, the war in Ukraine is consuming an enormous amount of Russian force structure and capability. They're going to be a decade or more trying to recover from what's happened to them in Ukraine. Uh, we have very strong partners in, in NATO that are very well equipped as well. So I am much less concerned about particularly a conventional conflict in Europe than I am about aggression in the Pacific. And I do believe that the things we're doing to modernize will have broad applicability. They won't just be for China. Uh, they'll be able to deal with, with any, of the, any potential competitor. 
Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, JJ. Thanks, Michael. Good to see you. Great seeing you, sir. Thanks very much. And if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts on the award-winning Defense and Aerospace Report Network. Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company. They clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our Technology Report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Meradian. Congratulations to Chris, Chris, and Laura for winning 2023 Defense Media Awards. And it is my honor and pleasure to welcome to the program Dave Deptula, a retired United States Air Force Lieutenant General, who is also the Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies uh, at the Air and Space Forces Association. Dave, thanks very much for joining us. And you must have had a real redux moment because I think back to when this uh, reoptimization plan was rolled out because it matched really closely something that uh, you and the great uh, retired Major General Ron Bath sort of were talking about some 20 plus years ago. Yeah, well, first, Fago and JJ, thanks very much for having me on. And yes, uh, this does take me back to kind of the 1999-2000 timeframe when we were uh, wrestling with the second quadrennial defense review. I think, as you know, I have participated in, encouraged, initiated, and actually conducted some significant organizational changes inside the Air Force over my time on active duty. But I would tell you right up front that I really applaud Secretary Kendall and uh, both General Saltzman and uh, General Alvin, because what they've done is laid out a blueprint, a necessary one for coherent change at a magnitude greater than ever before in Air Force history. And I know that's a pretty strong statement, but it also, to their credit, they accomplished the layout of these changes in a fraction of the time. And a comparison I came up with is, you know, it took four years to change the Air Force logo, for God's sake. I mean, and that's generally the, the bureaucratic pace of change. But I think all the Air Force leadership today recognizes that given the significance of the threats, not only do we have to modernize our geriatric uh, Air Force in under-resourced Space Force, but we've also got to take a look at some of the ways and means in which business is accomplished, which go beyond just organization. You know, everyone understands that these changes, they're not going to happen overnight. Some of them will be adjusted, and they recognize that, and they said that. And that's what was refreshing to hear. It was also refreshing to hear the Air Force leadership declare, and I don't know how many folks recognize this, but I certainly did, that these changes are not driven by efficiency. And this is part of what's gotten is the Department of Defense into the challenge that it's been facing. But these changes were driven by the need for improved warfighting effectiveness. And, you know, it's about time. So my compliments to the leadership on that. Do you think that absent these changes, the Air Force is really not going to be able to stand up to some of the challenges that are coming down the pike? I mean, that's one thing, Dave, you and I have been talking about for a long time, whether it's weapons inventories, whether it's the right kind of training, whether we've got the right kind of deployment models, right? I mean, the chief has articulately on, on the program a couple of days ago in discussing the reoptimization said, look, I mean, we're, we don't do large unit exercises anymore. We don't practice to an op plan anymore. So from your estimation, 
if we weren't doing these changes, would we be able to be ready to do the job? I mean, are the chief and the secretary and the CSO on the mark on this from your standpoint? Um, you know, the short answer is yes. However, it's a complex issue, Vago, because my inclination is to say, listen, the reason that we are facing the challenges that we are, and there is a real question of the ability of not just the Air Force, but the entire U.S. military to successfully respond to real aggression at a major theater war level is because the Department of Defense and the Air Force in particular has been under-resourced for 30 years. Right. Now, but it's not just the resources, which is what you allude to, because part of these changes are okay, even given the budget constraints that we're under, we have allowed some of our core training requirements and processes atrophy, or we got rid of some of them. For example, operational readiness inspections, tests of readiness and deployability and employment. We got rid of those in the name of efficiency. There's a lot to be said for declaring that we got to focus on our ability to fight and win. And so that's what's driving many of these changes, you know, not just the resources. But I mean, I think that's very key to all of this is if this is going to succeed, the Congress has to provide the resources to allow us to do that. And again, I apologize because this is complex, but if Congress is not going to give us the increased top line, then if the Department of Defense is serious about optimizing the forces they have, there needs to be a serious scrub inside the Department of Defense to place our resources that we do have where they provide the greatest payoff. In other words, cost per desired effect. And that's difficult because what that's going to mean is an honest roles and missions review. And none of the services want to do that. It's not just modernization. It's changing the way we do business. And that's where this optimizing for great power competition comes into play. Now, before this was all rolled out, a lot of folks were saying the sky is going to be falling. The changes are going to be huge. Are these ambitious enough? JJ, great question. I, I'm reminded of Goldilocks and the Three Bears story and uh, uh, the porridge <laughs> thing. But I think they're just right. I think they're ambitious. I think a lot of people are surprised when they saw the number of 24 major initiatives. Now, granted, some are more major than others, but they're not just throw something out there and let's see what happens. At the same time, there was some postulation about some very dramatic changes, which quite frankly, you have to be pragmatic as well. But I think the fact that these were binned into focusing on people, readiness, uh, projecting power and developing capabilities was a good way to bin the changes. And I think they're just right. Dave, you mentioned what has to happen to succeed. You know, you and I have seen a lot of these over the years, and some of them have been by great leaders that ended up being unfortunate cul-de-sacs that consumed resources and annoyed the force, whether it was on the maintenance side of the house or, or anywhere else. 
This doesn't appear to be changed purely for the sake of change. The chief has been thinking about this for a long time, and the secretary has been gathering data on this for a while as well. And the Air Force really, I think, can serve as a model if it executes this well to the other services about the changes that each of them have to make. Because I think if you took a cold look at you know the way the Army is organized and the way the Navy is organized and trains its folks and everything else, you, you could point out to how they could do better. From your standpoint, aside from the congressional part of this, this succeeds or fails whether airmen and the senior leadership of the force actually get aboard. And there seems to be a little bit of a lack of clarity from some of the conversations about what exactly this means for each of the major commands. What has to happen from your standpoint for this to succeed across the force and generate the Air Force that we need? You know, and forgive me, I can't remember who said it because there have been so many different panels, but it was encouragement for everyone to get on board and move out and not wait to be told. And the other thing I found refreshing is the fact that these things are laid out. There's also an acknowledgement that they're not all perfect. And so the devil's in the details, right? As each one of these elements are looked at and, and the questions asked, okay, what do we need to do to make this happen? The people that are affected are the ones that will determine just how well each of the individual elements will succeed. There's still a lot of questions out there. Once again, I think it's refreshing that, that the leadership has acknowledged that we have laid out sort of the macro level changes. Now we have to get into details. And I think the urgency of time has been made very clear. It has been a realistic one, but Again, in the secretary's initial remarks, he said some of these things we're going to implement immediately. Some of them are going to take up to a year, but that's what he gave folks. It's not four years to change a logo. It's okay. We're going to restructure our operational wings as mission-ready units of action. People approach me and ask, well, how are we going to do that? Why is the wing the unit of action when, in fact, we're talking about agile combat employment and distributing our forces. How is that going to work? You saw the diagram of modularity of the mission elements. Well, maybe those individual mission elements go down to four-ship level. I mean, these are the kinds of details that need to be fleshed out by those who are going to have to deal with them. Another one is reestablishing the relationship between combat wings and base commands which personally I think is long overdue. The one boss, one base thing was very nice from an efficiency perspective, but what did we do? We taught our wing commanders not to be warfighters. We taught them how to be city managers. So now clearly identifying a base command and combat wings, the combat wing commander is gonna be prepared to fight and execute his or her wing. Well. You know, culturally, that's huge. It is, in my humble opinion, a long overdue change. So how that gets put into play is going to be up to the people who are currently in those positions. But there's a lot to be done across all of these. What's the most influential piece, the biggest change? Needless to say, I think most everyone would agree that probably the most significant when it comes to organizational pieces of this is the stand up and establishment of the Integrated Capabilities Command. Well, that again is another 
huge set of changes that's going to have to occur and accomplished in a fashion to truly extract and derive the integration that's desired for the stand-up of that particular organization. And once again, it's one that's, that's really, really welcome because the mission of that command is fused into its name. The purpose being to ensure continuity and consistency and capability development across the entire Air Force. And so th this is really different from the current capability development process, which is largely stovepiped across our multiple major commands, each with different mission objectives and not necessarily informed by the greater Air Force enterprise requirements. I got, <laughs> again, I know we're under a time constraint here, but you know, I've got very specific battle scars of how this actually manifests itself way back in uh, 2002 timeframe, we were looking at the value of re-engining the B-52. But at that time, the B-52 was in Air Combat Command. The command that would really benefit from the value of re-engining the airplane from a reducing fuel consumption requirements was Air Mobility Command. But neither would own up with the, hey, this is, some, this is something what we need to do on our priority list, because they're, they're not the ones that benefited from the changes from the airplane. So here we are 20 years later, finally getting around to changing the engines on B-52. I, I throw that out just as a small example. Uh, but, you know, integration of capabilities across the Air Force is going to provide not just efficiency, but also increased effectiveness. But how do we do that? And then it's going to be matched with a parallel staff element in the Secretariat, the Integrated Capabilities Office, which will ensure department level oversight and continuity among uh, major developmental efforts. So these changes alone, I think, stand to enhance the mission effectiveness of the Air Force in the future. I'm sorry to go on so much with that, but it, uh, there's a lot to unpack here. It's fascinating stuff. Finally, sir one or two things that stood out to you from the rest of the conference over the last two days? You know what? I was struck by a comment that General Kelly made yesterday. It, it goes back to the resourcing piece, but he said, look, if you want to optimize for great power competition, you need to have sufficient capacity as well as capability, but capacity to be great. And that is a concern which takes us back to resources. It is very evident if you go back and you look at the numbers, and I'm just going to hone in on the Air Force here, but if you look at the force structure numbers, they're in decline and they're continuing in decline. And, and there's a lot of reasons for that. And this is why there's a lot of attention being paid toward collaborative combat aircraft, because that may be one means to help resolve the capacity issue in terms of uh, numbers of systems that are required to be able to compete in great power competition. But it goes back to resourcing, and that's a very uh, significant concern. And the secretary said this just last week when he was expressing his frustration over congressional budget dysfunction by stating that there's a chance that Congress might never appropriate the 24 budget. And, you know, he stated that, look, I'm going to have been in office for three and a half years and 
perhaps I'll never see a dime of the money that I've been working hard on to be competitive with China. And he said, that's a crime. And guess what? He's right. And if you lay on top of that, the fact that the Congress has written into the language that if they don't enact all 12 appropriation bills by April 30th, then they're going to reduce the Air Force's uh, top line funding to 23 enacted levels minus 1%. So not only would that stifle modernization, it would kill the plan to optimize for great power competition. It would give advantage to our adversaries by reducing our buying power by upwards of 13, 14 billion dollars. In fact, what we need is that amount annually as a plus up if we're really going to achieve the capacity necessary to compete in great power competition. So Congress has to do its job. It has to resource these plans or it's going to see great risk when great power competition turns into conflict and there's a chance of losing. A sober note on which to end. Dean David Deptula of the Mitchell Institute. Thank you so much for being with us on the Air Power Podcast. Thanks, JJ and Vago. Have a great air and space power kind of day. Thanks so much for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. And if you liked what you heard, hey, tell a friend, unless you think it would give them a competitive advantage. Thanks also to GE Aerospace for powering the entire flight. We'll be back next week. <laughs>